Welcome. We are Filmmaker's Cookbook, a podcast where we turn your favorite films into recipes, helping you expand your cinematic diets. My name is Michelangelo, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host... Me, Charles. Hey, Charles. How are you doing? I'm good. It's it's 9 o'clock at night. I am ready for bed, and we're going to talk for the next two hours. Yeah, something like that. Uh, cool. Well, I, I think it's going to be at least an interesting discussion today, because today we're going to be diving into the intriguing world of Thanksgiving movies. Ooh. Ooh. But what is a Thanksgiving movie? Do they exist? Like, or are they some, like, elusive perfectly carved turkey on the holiday table well <laughs> we'll figure out this episode i think hopefully join us as we embark on the cinematic quest to uncover the hidden gems that capture the spirit of gratitude family and feasting we're putting our minds to the test and brainstorming what might just be the ultimate thanksgiving film dun, dun, dun. we'll put this idea to test and see if possibly the most thanksgiving film out there could be pixar's the Incredibles. Is it? Will it be so? I think not. We'll see. That's a that's a quote from the film, actually. I think not. Oh yeah, Edna. Edna Mole. Before we get into that, the main course of this meal, let's first get into some appetizers and talk a little about some films we watched recently, or a segment we like to call concession impressions. Why don't we open it up to a discussion? We have only one TV show in here today. We have Loki, the new Marvel TV show. What I'm going to say about Loki is that for the last 15 years, it feels like Marvel has been like force feeding us the same meal. It's like we only were able to eat pizza for every single meal for the last 15 years. And at first you're like, oh, this is really fun. I like I like pizza. Pizza is great. And then after like a long time, after eating it for it for nothing but just pizza for 10 years, you're like, I'm kind of bored of this. I don't really want to eat or see pizza anymore. I also think that pizza has gone from like, you know, real Italian pizza made handcrafted and like tossed in the air to like Chuck E. Cheese pizza. Yeah. But I feel like Loki has come out and surprised us that possibly there are good pizzas out there. Yeah, there's still some good pizza to be had. I think it's just because it's so disconnected from the other storylines. Yeah, I guess I, I can see what you're talking about. Like it, it, it's in the universe. They talk about characters. They make jokes about characters. But for the most part, it's just about their own little thing in their own little universe. For now, at least. We'll see how it continues. It feels more like its own separate franchise. I just also feel like not just the story is just great, but I think like the acting, all of them have really great performances. Especially the first few episodes, I was like so invested in all the characters and what's going on and all the twists and stuff like that. And I think it was just like a fun show to watch and to tune into every Thursday night. And they've casted so well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's been a problem for the TV shows in particular is casting like the marvel movies are pretty good about casting most of the time but the tv shows always seem to struggle with their side characters because their side characters tend to be so flat and boring whereas these characters are so quirky and they've hired just all the most quirky actors and it works i'm not going to give it peanut m&ms because i don't think it's that amazing but i definitely would give it actually a popcorn i think it's like a nice fresh buttered popcorn i would give it a solid popcorn as well do you think it expands your cinematic diet or do you think it's just another repeat of another marvel 
property. I don't know if I would say it expands your cinematic diet, but it's it's not harming your cinematic diet. It's a cheat meal. But I think you said something very important about this movie, or this TV show, rather, is that it's like a pizza and Marvel films have turned into like a Chuck E. Cheese kind of pizza. Because funny you mentioned that, because the next film we should talk about, Five Nights of Freddy. I have a mixed, mixed feelings about it because it was really fascinating to be in the audience having never played the video game. I clearly was missing things. <laughs> that were important, but I think the storyline itself was very paint-by-numbers horror, and not even like good horror, it was very paint-by-numbers like like subpar Disney Channel horror. I don't know, like there's something to it. A movie about a game that's about looking at security cameras, I, I would imagine there's not much for a character to do. There is a few moments that are fun with the actual horror, with the actual backstory of this horror story. <laughs> and there's some fun kind of ghost story elements to it. I don't think it fully explored those concepts too much, but it does seem like this movie did well enough that we're going to get a sequel. I don't know if I'll particularly want to go see it, but <laughs> this is probably not really fair to it because I think if you are familiar with the, if you're already a part of the Five Nights at Freddy's community, you probably get a lot more out of it. But for me, it was really just a Raisinets all the way. <laughs> so sorry, Five Nights at Freddy's fans. If you haven't played the games, then steer clear of it. It sounds like it's a terrible film. Yeah, it's just, it's not going to be for you. So I'm guessing it's also not expand your cinematic diet. Mm, I don't think so. It does not. Gotcha. So what else do you got? So this film is called Beyond Utopia. It was a really interesting look at families trying to escape North Korea. It has some of the best exploration of tension in filmmaking I have seen in a really long time. So stepping back, it's traumatic. It's it's dra it's dramatic and traumatic. Like they have to cross through, I think it was like four or five different countries. All along the way, there are different countries that have different allegiances to either North or South Korea. Talking just about the filmmaking, this filmmaking experience was really tense in a really good way. And I think filmmakers might benefit from like studying it because it just, it completely maximizes kind of the three core tenets of building tension, which are time, stakes, and uncertainty. But I will say the one thing about this movie that does kind of suck is there is quite a lot of Christian propaganda. <laughs> and so I don't think everything in this movie can be believed, but it is certainly an important topic that we should discuss more as a society. It definitely expands your cinematic diet. I think I would give it a... I would give it a peanut M&M's, actually, even though I don't totally agree with some of the, like, more propagandistic elements of it. I think it overall, as a film, is pretty incredible. Nice. I think I'll have to check it out then. But let's get into the next film. A big movie came out recently, and by big, I mean, one, it's a big director, and two, I mean, it's a really long film. The next film we're going to talk about is Killers of the Flower Moon which is the new Scorsese film that came out. So I think for this film, first I'm going to preface it this way, is that I'm not a huge Scorsese fan. Not that I don't like his films. It's more of that I just feel like I haven't seen enough of his stuff. When I watched this film, a part of me was comparing it to all of his other films. And then afterwards, I was also thinking about it through the lens of just a film. 
And I will say that it's such a long film. It's like three and a half hours. I think it was in the movie theater for like four hours long. I was personally on the edge of my seat and I was like invested in the characters. I thought it was a really interesting and sad and engaging movie. And I really enjoyed it. And it almost didn't feel like it was necessarily three and a half hours because I think he did a great job in reeling you in and just like kind of keeping your attention throughout the whole film. Now, I can't say that that's the same thing for everyone else in the theater because the person sitting to the left of me fell asleep multiple times through the film and started snoring. And then the person on the other side of me, he was on his phone for the first half of the film and then he just left halfway in. However, I think it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it was, I think, probably about an hour too long. I really think this movie is told from the wrong perspective and i just think martin scorsese is not the right person to tell that perspective this movie should have been from the character of molly perspective i think part of the problem with martin scorsese is that all of his movies are really focused on this angsty violent male character and so he chose the character he's most comfortable with as the main character which is the leonardo dicaprio character in this movie I felt like from reading some interviews and like articles about the film, it sounded like the detectives were going to be the initial main characters and focus of the film. And I think it made sense for them to change it because it felt like it would have been more of like a detective, you know, murder mystery film. Yet, I think Leonardo's character would have been, was actually really fun to follow because I think he was like also kind of an interesting character. But you're right. I think Lily Gladstone's character would have been, First of all, like much, she's like definitely the most important character, and also you're rooting for her throughout the whole film. I would give it a popcorn. I think it's still good. I think it still has a lot of really great filmmaking to offer. Especially there were some great scenes of more spiritual elements, which I think he does also really well. Like there was the scene when the mother character passes away, and we see like ancestors come and like pick her up basically so take her to whatever osage version of an afterlife looks like even seeing so many like osage or maybe perhaps not osage but native actors is always really nice to see especially given the history of cinema which has classically done red face for native american people for those who don't know is when a white person puts on native american garb and pretends to be native we have a very rich and problematic history of doing that in this country and it's nice whenever you see and i think especially you're seeing a lot of native american filmmaking happening right now another native american show for instance is reservation dogs that's really great as well for those who want to check out some really nice native american filmmaking i I think it's just suffers that this movie is almost too much of a martin scorsese film when it could have been a more interesting film had perhaps some of these up-and-coming native filmmakers gotten a chance to tell this story and i hope they will unfortunately it's less likely now that they will get to tell that story because it's now already been told in recent history i think that i would say that it's probably be like a popcorn for me as well mainly because i think i just felt leaving the theater feeling like it could have been better and i think you you hit it pretty well with you know 
all these points that you just brought up. I would say that it does expand your cinematic diet because it does kind of begin a interesting conversation. And also it does kind of, like you said, have some of those more native actors and native American actors and some of that, which I think was really nice. Like I said, I feel like the one thing that was interesting about this was that it turned out to be like a procedural halfway in, like a courtroom procedural, just like Oppenheimer and also like the next movie we're going to talk about the anatomy of a fall this movie is really kind of fun i thought it was a as you're alluding to a legal drama it is about a woman who has suspiciously found her husband dead after having fallen from the third floor of his chalet in the alps i thought that it was an interesting film especially since that like you're kind of always guessing who did it Speaking of, you you mentioned Did She Do It. Did you see that at the beginning of the movie, they had a website called didshedoit.com where you can vote on whether you think she did it or not? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't know that. What do you think? Did she do it or not? Uh, I don't know. I, I think the viewers should decide. How about if you listening to this right now, why don't you comment either on our Instagram or somewhere, send us a message. I'm, I'm curious to what people think. This is a great film that you can watch and then afterwards you can talk to, you know, your friends and, and or whoever you want to go watch the film with and have a nice discussion afterwards, which is why I would say that it was a good, a great example of like a peanut M&M film. And I think it also expands your cinematic diet as well, because I feel like it does it in a really interesting way. Yeah. And, and I think the I think what makes it feel so modern for me personally is just that it's not afraid to be so ambiguous like it it doesn't judge its characters at all for any of the things they do if it's good it's bad it's neither it's always gray you know what i mean so like even like some of the side characters have these weird little negative quirks about them and the movie doesn't judge them for it and then you see like positive quirks and the movie also doesn't like laud them for being a halfway decent person you know it's it's just it's fascinatingly ambiguous and it as you're saying that carries out through even the very end of the movie to when you leave the theater because you still don't know speaking of what's not clear you i don't think you've given did you give your your ranking for this already i i would give it a peanut m&m it has a lot to say and a lot to be studied about in terms of pacing because the scenes aren't super fast, actually. And I think that's what a lot of filmmakers get wrong, is they try to make scenes super fast in order to keep you engaged or like have stuff exploding constantly in the background. And certainly you can have that level of engagement and make it really work. But one, you're going to exhaust your audience because they have to then pay attention you know, the entire time. Whereas this movie has... Lots of little moments where you can kind of dip in and out and not have 100% focused attention. Or you can like rest a little bit and thus it's a much more relaxing experience. And you get a great dramatic story. (laughs) Speaking of movies that are like Gone Girl, there's another film, the last film we're going to talk about today, that is very related to Gone Girl because it's a David Fincher film. So we're going to talk about The Killer, which is David Fincher's newest film it's a very simple murder revenge hitman story 
which is something that I feel like David Fincher hasn't or doesn't really do. Even though he's never done this before, I feel like he somehow mastered it. <laughs> I thought it was like so well crafted. I loved how he never really told you what you were, what was going on and who was doing like I guess you kind of know what he's doing, but like it doesn't you don't get like a phone call by the villain and they like monologue for 10 minutes about what their master plan is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this movie similarly is really well paced in terms of how it develops the the action and the tension throughout the movie. I think the one thing that everyone agreed on, which I kind of was able to listen, but everyone had felt like had a, a difficult time hearing the film, especially the dialogue. And it might have been just the theater I went to, but I think this movie will be coming out on, on Netflix. And I think... For those who want to watch this film, I'm sure you probably didn't have a chance to get it in its limited release in theaters. I would say definitely watch it on Netflix and definitely use subtitles because I feel like you probably will need it. But it, it definitely is a film that I definitely enjoyed watching and would watch again. So I'm just say right now, I'm going to give it a peanut number nuts. I, I think it's a hot dog for me. Oh, wow. That low. It just, it just, I, when it's a dumb action movie, which that's really what, the script for this movie is is a dumb action movie i want the john wick style of just give me the crazy characters with lots of visual spectacle so i just don't have to think for two hours i will say that it doesn't expand your cinematic diet but i think it was a good it was a fun time for me especially if it's you know holidays are coming up if you're going to be at home maybe don't necessarily watch it with family of kids but like if you're you know an adult with friends who are also older then i think it'll be a fun time you know i'm going to change my review i'm going to change it to a popcorn because i just think it's unfair to call it a hot dog it's just that's not quite fair i the reason i was giving it a hot dog was i was I felt unsatisfied, which is normally my metric for a hot dog, but it is so well made that it's hard to like truly give it a hot dog because normally a hot dog is like kind of poorly made, right? Like, so it, 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 what it lacks in depth for me, it makes up for in craft. Gotcha. A well craft is like a sausage instead of a hot dog. Well, there you go. That's our concession impressions then. Why don't we clear the plates and go into our main course for today, Thanksgiving Films. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. Thanksgiving Films. I wanted to talk about this for a while, and that's because... I'm so curious about Thanksgiving films. Like we have dedicated Halloween films. We have dedicated Valentine's Day's films, but we don't have Thanksgiving films. So I did research and I did so much research into thinking what is a Thanksgiving film? What are some examples of it? And we're going to put it to the test to what I think might be the best or most iconic Thanksgiving film. So I think I talked about it one thing already that I want to just quickly go over. And I think the reason why Thanksgiving films specifically, Thanksgiving the holiday, isn't really necessarily the focus of a Thanksgiving movie is because Thanksgiving is such an American holiday. It's not really a good American holiday. I mean, we're pretty much, we're pretty much celebrating like 
killing Native Americans and forcing them off their land. So I think it's not necessarily a, a topic that we kind of want to celebrate that much. But going into it a little bit, what is the Thanksgiving, like if we were to break down Thanksgiving into its core food elements here, what would we give it? I would say that like you have like gratitude and you have family and gathering and friendship and teamwork, these different elements of coming together and and spending time together. So I feel like those core elements are pretty much what can be a Thanksgiving film. Yeah, I, I think the main thing is the the celebration of family and the family unit. We looked at a list of basically every major movie that released around Thanksgiving, and some of the ones that popped up were things like Harry Potter, which has a through line of more found family, but like family still. Things like the one movie we're going to talk about later today, The Incredibles, and actually quite a lot of Pixar movies. Yeah, what's made it really interesting that I found was that back almost to like almost 30 years ago, uh, Disney, I'm going to use maybe say Disney Pixar because I know that they were not one company before, but now they are technically kind of a joint company. So I'm just going to say Disney Pixar somewhat interchangeably here. But for the last 30 years, pretty much Disney Pixar has released a film on Thanksgiving every single year. Going back to the first major Pixar film, Toy Story, being released on Thanksgiving weekend. And then we also have like films like Coco and The Incredibles. Not necessarily it comes out like a week earlier than Thanksgiving, but Frozen and like so many of the big Disney Pixar films come out on Thanksgiving weekend. Part of the Pixar brand is this making of movies that the whole family can enjoy, which is unusual, actually, for most films. Most films can't really satisfy an entire age range like that. Just like Thanksgiving, right? You have a meal that can somehow satisfy and also dissatisfy the entire family at the same time. Pixar slash Disney might be the ultimate Thanksgiving franchise film like they make thanksgiving films i feel like i mean i honestly i feel like it's i kind of set it up to <laughs> i was leading my own witness in 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 setting up this this definition i feel like because even though it's true i do feel like the incredibles is definitely all of those things that i already said i mean obviously teamwork i mean they're superheroes but it's also about family and also has like the family it's not just like a family obviously they're a family of superheroes but there's this very interesting dynamic of it's just like they're superheroes but they're also a normal family in a way right and they have like family issues like mr incredible is going behind mrs incredible's back and trying to do superhero things and kind of like lying to her and not telling her that she lost he lost his job and all these things and like there's these elements of of disconnect and like familiar conflict which i feel like is right up the alley of what a a thanksgiving movie is because it has those like family values that family problem but then it also like it's a coming together film right because in the end they come together they even have their their closest friends that are helping them out as well and they you know are victorious in the end yeah i mean i i think it has all the elements that we're looking for for a thanksgiving film 
Also, even though it's technically a superhero movie, what it really is is a family drama about a family that's kind of grown apart slightly because of their various life issues, and then that causes them all to have various destructive tendencies, right? And that brings the whole story to a head, where they get the great moment where they finally all unify, and that unification is ultimately what brings them together and solves all of their problems. Exactly. Just like on Thanksgiving, how you bring all the separate dishes together to make one giant feast. Yes, exactly. What do you think about the flavors of this film? It, obviously, it's a happy film, right? Because it's overall, it's a family film. It's It has a happy ending. And it, but it also has, the, like you said, like those individual obstacles for, for all the characters. And like it has a little bit of like a, an anger and a sadness to it. I mean, obviously, it's like a Disney sadness and a Disney anger, but it's, it is it is there as well. Definitely, I would say happy is a, a main thing and kind of surprises a, a through line with Pixar films because it's kind of like, what if superheroes were normal? Yeah, I mean, I think like any really really iconic great film it tends to have multiple flavors and kind of a little bit of all the flavors but i think the main two flavors are anger and happiness and also surprise actually for sure surprise so main three flavors i i think there are elements of fear there's elements of sadness maybe not so much disgust there's not really too much disgust here anywhere to be had but i i I think Anger and happy are almost, I would say, balanced really well, which is curious. Like, that's kind of unusual, I think, uh, in in movies. Um, usually one kind of dominates. I think Pixar films can do that, though. Like, they have this really interesting way to be able to balance flavors really well. And I feel like it makes sense that a Pixar film is one that can balance happy and anger pretty well. For sure, for sure. I think how they get away with that, potentially, is just because the motivations of the characters are actually so relatable. And just to go over it one more time, because it is it is kind of confusing at times, too, and it can easily get forgotten, but surprise would be spicy, and happy would be sweet, sad would be salty, fear would be bitter, disgust would be sour, and anger would be umami, or savory. So we're pretty much saying that this film is going to be a primarily sweet and savory film with hints, or I guess also a spiciness to it as well, with some hints of salty and bitter and not really that much, I guess some salty and then lesser so bitter and sour flavors. So it's primarily like a savory sweet with some spice in it as well. Which, by the way is pretty much the exact flavor profile of one of the most famous Thanksgiving desserts. Pumpkin pie! I like that. I like that. You know, I really was going to pitch an item that I have already pitched on this show, bibimbap. It's like the it's like the Korean dish because it has like those different core elements. We have like a little bit of meat over here. You have a little bit of rice over here. I guess there's more than just a little bit of rice. And you have like different elements kind of all there. And then you have like a spicy sauce on top and you just mix it all together and it becomes like this really tasty dish. And I feel like that kind of matches the coming together of family and becoming like a whole main, like complete dish. But I definitely think that pumpkin pie, one, fits the Thanksgiving part of this film that really represents Thanksgiving. 
But I also feel like bibimbap is not really a sweet dish. It's more like a savory, umami, like spicy kind of dish. So I would say that the sweetness is not there, which uh, I would have to be kind of really pulling it to try and to get a sweeter dish there. So I think that pumpkin pie actually would be a really good fit for that. For making pumpkin pie, you take pumpkin, right? And you, you soften it and you like pretty much mash it up. What if we add different vegetables that are also kind of umami, have that umami flavor and add it into it? What about like sweet potatoes? Yams and sweet potatoes are, they're all, they're all related. It's like a, it's like a, a family we can have, I think, maybe different potatoes that kind of somewhat, you know, represent some of these characters, right? Like we can have like a purple yam that could be like our violet. Ooh, I do like that idea. We can have like pumpkin, obviously, because I think pumpkin's a good like red-ish kind of color because they're Incredibles. They have like that redness to them as well. And we can kind of in- in- introduce like or combine a few different sweet potatoes and yams and stuff of like that to make like this filling of this really sweet but yet umami and some nice seasonings in there to make a really nice balanced dessert dish. I love that, yeah. I think we've cracked the code here for a really nice pie. I think we have a good dish. I think we have a fun dish. I think we've, I've, I'm so happy that I've cracked the code on what a Thanksgiving film is. So for this Thanksgiving, you can go home and be like, let's all watch a Thanksgiving movie. And then everyone's like, what's a Thanksgiving movie? And then you can say, well, Disney Pixar is Thanksgiving, especially Incredibles is maybe the best Thanksgiving film out there. And if you were to eat the Incredibles, not the not the family, but the, the film and turn it into a dish, then a nice, sweet, multi yam and pumpkin pie would best represent that film. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Filmmakers Cookbook. And let us know what you think, if you think we got it, and if this is a perfect dish that represents The Incredibles, and if The Incredibles is truly a Thanksgiving film. Let us know on Instagram or Twitter, and always remember to to like and review our podcast as well. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and we'll see you on the next episode of Filmmakers Cookbook. Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Bye.